You're listening to the U.S. Sports Podcast with Max Whittle. Today's guests, Jacksonville Jaguars offensive lineman Kelvin Beecham and NFL.com writer Don Banks. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the U.S. Sports Podcast with Max Whittle. A loaded guest list and plenty of topics to get into today. The Cubs and the Indians are playing in a World Series. Yes, I repeat that. The Cleveland Indians versus the Chicago Cubs is your World Series for 2016. The NBA season has begun and don't look now, but the Warriors lost their first game of the Kevin Durant era. First guest today is Jacksonville Jaguars offensive lineman Kelvin Beecham, who was drafted 248 by the Pittsburgh Steelers in 2012. He has gone on to become an integral starter in the NFL, currently with the Jags. Following Kelvin, Don Banks comes onto the podcast. Don covered the NFL for 16 years for Sports Illustrated. Before that, he was a beat reporter in Tampa Bay and Minnesota, and now he writes his famous Snap Judgments column NFL.com. Before we get to the news, I wanted to send out my thoughts and love to Kristen Ledlow, who was on this podcast just last week. Now, on Sunday, she tweeted out the following message. Yesterday, I was robbed at gunpoint by three men who knew who I was, where I lived and were waiting for me when I got home. They stole my car, my purse, my wallet, my phone and worst of all, my sense of security. While I'll be taking a social media hiatus, I will not become a slave to fear. Kristen was a great guest and above all, I'm just glad that she's okay. I think it's wise that she takes a little break and it was really great that she was working the sideline for the Cavs-Knicks game on opening night. After what happened in such a short space of time, she went and did her job and I hope she's okay. Uh, I hope this sort of thing you know, doesn't happen to anyone. But Kristen was so gracious on the show and I, I just wanted to send out my thanks to her for coming on and I hope she's okay, her family are okay. So let's get to the top four storylines in what is the best time of year, I hope you'll agree, to be a US sports fan. Number one, the World Series is set, but which winner would be the better story, the Cubs or the Indians? So the Cubs' last World Series appearance was back in 1945. Indians, 1997. It's 108 years since the Cubs won a World Series. For the Indians, they didn't win one. You have to go back to 1948. Combining that, It's a lot of years. Now, the first thing I wanted to bring up, and as I speak, the Indians have won nothing up in the series. So when you hear this podcast, Game 2 would have finished, um, and it's pretty historic, the rate in which the the team that win Game 1 go on to win the series. It's like 64% all-time, I think. So Cleveland's got that first step taken forward. The first thing I wanted to bring up about this, though, Steve Bartman. There's talk that he will throw out the ceremonial first pitch at Game 3 at Wrigley Field. Really? The 2003 NLCS, if you don't know the story, Steve Bartman deflected a foul ball and left fielder uh, Moses Alou for the Cubs was in clear path to catch this ball. The Cubs blew that series. They were 3-1 up against the Florida Marlins. They ended up losing it. And that was another curse against the Cubs. Now, Bartman's been persecuted. Absolutely persecuted. And he doesn't, he doesn't deserve this. You have to remember the Cubs made an error on the next play after that happened. They, were, they had a chance. They had a game seven. They blew a 3-1 lead. It wasn't just down to that. But he was persecuted. But let's not do this ceremonial pitch before you haven't won the World Series. Do it after if you win. Bring him back next season for opening day. What if they lose? Like I said, Alex Gonzalez made an error the next play after Bartman did that. 
You had a lead in that game. You had a game seven. Now, you who have said this week that they would... They're saying that if Bartman were to do this, have this pitch, it would offer some sort of closure in a particularly ugly part of Cubs law. Hang on a second. This gets uglier if they lose game three, right? If they lose game three, Bartman throws out the, the first pitch. That makes it completely... It, it brings the story again to the fore. It makes it even worse. Managers in this series. Terry Francona for Cleveland. Joe Madden for Chicago. Now, Francona is always, always one of my favorite interviews to hear. Really, really interesting. And, and in Toronto, he actually lost part of his tooth. And they summoned a dentist at one o'clock in the morning in Toronto. These are the perks, ladies and gentlemen, you get if you are a, a Major League Baseball manager. Tito Francona, as he's known, he won two titles in Boston. Ultimate collapse in 2011, which cost him his job in a very pressurized uh, arena that is Fenway Park and the Red Sox. He's got this gig with the Cleveland Indians, and he's proving that he can take any team to the World Series. Fascinating run. They swept the Red Sox. Toronto, next up, looked like they're far superior, at least offensively. Cleveland win that series. And it's just, it's good to see that two very clear man managers have made this level. You would put Madden and Francona 1-2 either either way, depending on, on, on who you support, probably. Another one who's a big factor in this series is Theo Epstein. He was GM for the uh, the Red Sox. 28 years old, Theo Epstein, when he joined Boston. 28. He's now 42. Going to be in the Hall of Fame, I'm, I'm no doubt, along with Francona. But there's this interesting, you know, storyline here that Francona and Epstein were in Boston together and now they're coming together in a World Series against each other and they're both with different clubs. Um, reversing the final two curses as well, Epstein. He earned a new deal because of this Cubs run to, to break this Boston curse he did in 04 and 07 and then to do it with Chicago, get them back to a World Series is a tremendous job. But my question on this point before I move to number two, what is the better story here? We talk about the Cubs. We talked about them since March. They were the story since spring training. They were the favourites. They were the best team. We talk about the lovable losers, the Cubs drought. The Indians, they lost starting pitchers, Carlos Carrasco and Danny Salazar in the final month of the season. They've been without left fielder Michael Brantley, who only played 11 games this season. Catcher Jan Gomes, he was awful this year, granted, but his absence still means that they are without their starting catcher. Cleveland added Andrew Miller, amazing addition. But wouldn't you say that going into this season, Cleveland had a lot, lot lower odds than Chicago winning World Series, despite what's happened in the past? Don't tell me that the players on this current Cubs team are thinking about history. I'm sure Addison Russell and Chris Bryant don't know who played for the Cubs in 1945 or the early 1900s. Go back to the Andrew Miller edition quickly. Indians lost four prospects to get him. Clint Fraser was one of them. He's a top 25 prospect. But Miller is... He's controllable for another two seasons. That's the key. And his strikeout and walk ratio is ridiculous. Cody Allen at closer, lights out. And I think that's why they're going to win the series, because of that bullpen. The Cubs, I think most people want to see them win. If you're not an Indians fan and you're not a St. Louis Cardinals fan, and maybe some people uh, in South Chicago, I think you're a Cubs fan in this one. I mean, come on. The White Sox, uh, Jerry Reinsdorf, is putting his faith in the Cubs he wants to see them win but there was this weird report the other day someone had written that the Cubs would lose their appeal and become just another franchise if they won so hang on are they supposed to deliberately lose 
Put it this way. Would you rather be hated for winning or love for losing? Number two, the NBA opening night takeaways. There was a lot of uh, reaction to the Warriors losing to the Spurs. They got blown out at home by San Antonio. The other couple games, Damian Lillard plays to the point where he cannot miss out on an all-star game this season. And Cleveland, while they picked up where they left off. So let's start with the Cavs because I think I don't think they got enough credit for winning the title last year. It's all been about the Warriors since then. They had the ring ceremony. The championship banner was unveiled. Meanwhile, 200 yards across the road, the Indians are hosting the World Series for the first time since 1997. Well, they, they've never hosted it game one. It was the first time they've been there since 97. What a night for Cleveland sports. The rings that the, the, the Cleveland Cavaliers received, 6.5 carat, over 400 diamonds in each of those rings. And LeBron had a great speech and said, it's Cleveland against the world. So Mr. James comes out. We've talked about the MVP and, and he's going for number five this year, which would tie him for Bill Russell and Michael Jordan. I think he made a statement. He got triple-double, 19 points, 11 rebounds, 14 assists. That's his 43rd career triple-double. The big three of Kevin Love, Kyrie Irving and LeBron. 71 points they combined for. LBJ, we saw the experiment going with the lowering of the minutes. Played 32 minutes. You can see he's still productive. They wallop the Knicks by 20, 20 plus points. Kyrie Irving, I think he'll lead the Cavs this season with points. in points. He scored a game-high 29. But the Knicks, the Knicks... Kristaps Porzingis, Carmelo Anthony and Derrick Rose, all in double figures on this night. But Porzingis had only two shots from Anthony and Rose passes. Meanwhile, the latter two shot 35 times between them. The New York Knicks will not be successful if Carmelo is spotting up and Derrick Rose tries to be the Derrick Rose of five, six seasons ago. Notice, understand, Kristaps has to be involved more. We've brought you guys in to help. And the newbies, Courtney Lee, scoreless, Brandon Jennings, 0 for 4 from 3. Got to improve. But the Cavs look like the, the beast in the East again. And the other game from opening night in the NBA was Portland and Utah. This was Portland's 16th straight home opening win. Utah saw debuts for George Hill and Joe Johnson. Johnson scored 29 points. Not bad. And, and we mentioned last week they had 40 wins last year. But Gordon Hayward's out right now. Quinn Snyder, great coach. To get them to 40 last year, I think they're going to be improved. Um, but it was all about Portland on this night. Damian Lillard, who's a two-time All-Star, he didn't make the team last year, the All-Star game. And the year before that, he was he replaced Blake Griffin because Griffin was injured. 39 points on 65% shooting on this night. 16 points in the fourth quarter. And this has got to be the second best backcourt in the West behind Curry and Clay. CJ McCollum scores 25 and I think the Trailblazers really are targeting the Western Conference Finals this year. They got to the second round last season, lost to the Golden State Warriors 4-1 in the end. But Terry starts, man. Give him some credit. They lost to Marcus Aldridge, Robin Lopez, Wesley Matthews a couple seasons ago, and they've really turned this thing around. So I'm excited to have the NBA back. Plenty of special guests on the podcast going forward this season. Number three, the NFL's ratings. Everyone's talking about this, so I thought I would too. Now, America will decide on a new president on November the 8th, and it seems no one can wait any longer than NFL executives. Some of the reasons why the ratings are down. Twitter Thursday games. These couple hundred thousand viewers do not count to TV ratings. Online streaming. The kids love to stream nowadays. Boring matchups. Look no further than Texans Broncos from Monday night. Matchups that we think are great, 
but they haven't been. Look no further than Seattle tying with Arizona 6-6. Missing star players as well. J.J. Watt is out for the season. Peyton Manning's retired. And the National Anthem protest. All of those have been factored in. Double-digit declines, though, in audience. Now, to put this into perspective, the major carriers, CBS, NBC, Fox, ESPN, they all pay, they all pay sorry, roughly $5 billion annually for games. This is big business. But the NFL has seen that number doubled the last 10 years, up to that $5 billion number. Most of the television broadcasts and channels see their numbers decline. The NFL has always gone up and up recently. Now, the NFL will be worried if this continues throughout the season, especially after November the 8th. But even going back to as far as 1996, the ratings have always gone down historically during presidential debates and, and elections. But through six weeks, primetime NFL telecasts, they averaged 16.25 million viewers, compared with a 6.9 million for broadcast network primetime shows. So they're kicking butt in that respect. But this is the big numbers right here. Thursday Night Football is down 18% compared with last year. NBC's Sunday Night Football, down 19%. And ESPN's Monday Night Football, down 24%. That is a huge drop-off. They're experiencing single-digit declines Sunday afternoon. And that's when people watch the most football, I guess. But that's still a drop-off. Now, let's take this to the, the debate side of things. So, through the first six weeks of the football season... Sunday viewing of cable news channels, CNN, MSNBC and Fox News, were up nearly 80% compared with last year in the 1.30 to 7pm hours. So when people are watching the NFL, or they should be, there's a lot of games on that time, that is a huge increase. Some games have gone up against the presidential debates as well. That's been a problem. The first presidential face-off between Trump and Clinton, that was on September the 26th. And that was watched by 84.4 million people. That sliced right into Monday Night Football on ESPN. The second debate, October the 9th, that drew 66.5 million. That cut into the audience for Sunday Night Football on NBC. This has happened during every election, like I said, but not to this extent. The lack of stars and the crappy games, don't get me wrong, they don't help either. But trying to get young people to watch games, that's why they've gone to Twitter. That's only a couple hundred thousand and it's not really eating into the TV audience. So it's worth watching after November 8th whether this trend continues. And finally, number four, before we get to our special guests, Kelvin Beecham and Don Banks, Twickenham's debut hosting NFL games uh, the other week. It saw a bad game. New York Giants beat the Rams 17-10, to but I wanted to give you my thoughts on the experience. I was there covering the game for Sports Illustrated and... There were some good things and some bad things. I think it was really refreshing to have a new stadium, first of all. When I walked into the almost empty stadium, Nicole Scherzinger, Craig David, they were rehearsing. So they got the big, the big guns in in terms of the artists. But it was just nice to see a football field, the yellow posts, the white lines, with a different setting. The green seats of Twickenham. The fact that it was a little bit more compact. The fact that it's a historical rugby ground. And I think this is breaking ground for the NFL. The transport links were a lot harder. Um, you most people probably went to London Waterloo and got an overground train to Twickenham on the way back out even a couple hours after the end of the game there were huge queues so the transport was difficult the queues to get in were a lot bigger and I think that kind of negated against the idea of a tailgate before and after but the field looked great roughly 9,000 less fans in attendance than Wembley they had the mayor there Siddiq Khan they had Bayern Munich come over to, to see Odell Beckham no doubt it was a bad game, but I think good for the fans here. And it was historical having this game in an RFU-owned environment. So let's see how it goes. But I think 
the the funny thing was after the game, the locker rooms, they didn't use the rugby locker room. So we were, the media were thrown into this makeshift locker room. It was uh, really quite strange how players were cramped in there and it was definitely just for, you know, temporary for a week. Um, whereas the new Tottenham Hotspur ground, which will host NFL games from 2018, that's going to be definitely made, predominantly made for an NFL team as well as football, soccer. So I think that's where the future is for the NFL, along with Wembley. But Twickenham was a nice, a nice new environment. Those are my top storylines from the last week. Obviously, there's so much more going on, but we have to get to our first guest today, Kelvin Beecham, offensive tackle for the Jacksonville Jaguars. This guy kindly gave me a lot of his time on his off day. He talks about his upbringing in a tiny town in Texas, being drafted far down the list and how it motivates him to this day. His time in Pittsburgh, signing with the Jags, and as an African-American, he has some fascinating views on the national anthem protests. Let's get to it. Back on the US Sports Podcast, joined by Jacksonville Jaguars offensive tackle Kelvin Beecham. Kelvin, how is morale? (laughs) Morale is high, extremely high right now. Hey, so if I was to go to Jacksonville, what's the one thing I need to go and do? You got to go to Taco Lou. Uh, it's a it's a uh, it's a spot over not too far from the beaches. Um, very well respected. Some of the best foods you get in town. But I like to eat. I'm an offensive lineman, so that would be the the first thing that I would do if I was telling anybody to come to. <laughs> well, first thing I would tell anybody if they were coming to Jacksonville. Hey, so I know you like food because um managed to spend a bit of time in the locker room with you after you beat the Colts uh Wembley a couple of weeks ago and you said that we need to have some A1 sauce in London. Now what is that? <laughs> A1 steak sauce is like a steak sauce. So you know how you know if you have filet mignon, or if you have a strip steak or uh you know, any type of steak you wanna have you know, sometimes you need a little A one steak sauce. So it's like a little it's just sauce that goes well. For for people who may not know, it's kind of like ketchup, but it's sauce. So you know how you have ketchup for fries? Yeah. You have uh, steak sauce, so A1 steak sauce for steaks. But did, So you had a steak in London then, am I, is that, I'm guessing? Uh, yes, I did. I had to eat it without <laughs> without A1 steak sauce. <laughs> oh, poor you, poor you. Uh, what, what are on that topic then, before we get into your career? Um what is a normal meal for you on, let's say, a practice day? Is it for a lineman? Is it kind of unlimited of what you can eat, or do you have to watch what you eat? I mean, you still want to watch what you eat because you worry about your body composition. So you don't want your body composition and uh, fat mass to go up. So you are somewhat conscientious about what you eat. But at the same time, you still need to eat enough where your body can function at the optimum level. So, you know, for me, you know, I can talk about breakfast because that's one of the big meals that I have before practice. You know, I usually go and get um, about four or five eggs scrambled with broccoli and cheese, uh, you know, probably about six to eight slices of bacon, um, a bowl of oatmeal with uh, uh, blueberries, blackberries, uh, strawberries mixed in together, some pineapples, uh, probably a glass of orange juice, Gatorade, propel, um, you know, it, it's a, it's a, and that's my routine that I that I use pretty much every day that I'm in the building when I when we have breakfast ready uh, ready and available for us. Uh, then um, the way our schedule is set, you know, it's kind of hard to eat a big lunch because our lunch is is in between our walkthrough and our live practice. So um, you know, you don't want to eat too much because you don't want to be out there throwing up. You know, during that that heavy Wednesday practice that we have every week. Of course. Um... 
Well, you're, you're considered a success story in the NFL because of where you are now, having been selected 248th in the draft uh, four seasons ago, and the fact that you were the smallest left tackle in the league last year. So when you were picked with the Steelers' fourth seven-round pick, what was your overall feeling? Um, for one, it was it was a feeling of joy and a feeling of uh, exuberance uh, because I waited all day and my name was finally called. But after that, I knew that I had a lot of work to to, 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 there was a lot of work to be done, uh, first and foremost. Um, and, you know, at the same time, I was a little bitter. You know, I saw a lot of people that got drafted before me um, that I felt that I was better than and had even players on my team that got drafted before I did, you know, and thought I would have been the, the, the one that was drafted before everybody else. So um, it is what it is. Uh, it's over and done with. But, you know, it's something that continues to motivate me, something that uh, is on my mind. Um, pretty regularly, something that I think about pretty regularly as well. As well. So it must serve as motivation. If we had three hours on this show, I'd ask you to name all 247 names ahead of you. But do you think you could guess how many <laughs> of those you actually know? Uh, the guys that were drafted ahead of me. Yeah, how many do you think you could name? I know, I know, I know, I know all of them. I mean, I know, I know. You're talking about like talking about players in general or the, every, or yeah. offensive linemen. So every player that was selected in front of you. Uh, I have no way I can name all of them, you know, especially guys that are not in my position. Um, I can name guys that, that played the position that I played. You know, I think about guys, uh, Matt Khalil, um, who, you know, played for the uh, Minnesota Vikings. Uh, Kaliche, who's in uh, Oakland now, was in uh, Baltimore when he first started out. Um, you look at my team, uh, well, my former team, uh, when we were drafted, you had Mike Adams that was drafted that year, David DeCastro who was drafted that year, uh, Ben Jones, uh, Jeff Allen, who was my roommate at the Combine, um, Cordy Glenn. Um, <laughs> we get it, Kelvin. You, you're very, you're very motivated yeah, I, for these I, names, I can, right? I can, I can, I, yeah, I can, I can, I can go, <laughs> I can go on forever. I, all I got to do is just start thinking about, okay, what teams have I played this year, and what guys on that team were in that 2012 draft? You know, Bobby Massey, who we just played. Uh, this week in Chicago, uh, I can go on for days, man. <laughs> I can just see your bedroom wall right now. It's got the names of every single one of them just around the bed. <laughs> every night you're seeing that. Um, there's another name I'm interested in, and it's where you were born. Uh, I saw the slogan is no, it's known as a great place, however you pr- pronounce it. I'm going to let you name the Correct. place and tell me how it was <laughs> how it was growing up there. Uh, it's Mahia. Uh, that's that's how it's said, and if you're from the country where, where I consider Mahia to be, we say Maher. And if you are somebody that's not from Maher, uh, it's Mexia. It looks like Mexia, yeah. Spelled. Exactly. So people who don't know it um, say Mexia, but it's Mahia. Uh, that's the proper way to say it. And like I said, I'm country, so I say Maher. But it's about uh, an hour and a half south of Dallas, and I have to use reference points. It's about an hour and a half south of Dallas about two hours um, uh, north of Houston. Uh, it's about uh, 40 miles um, east from Waco and 40 miles west of Palestine. And if you know where Palestine is, Palestine is where Adrian Peterson uh, went to school and where he's from. So um, that was a reference point of Mahia. Mahia was a, was a very small town, about 7,500 people. When I was growing up, we only had about four or five lights at the time. Um, everybody knows everybody. Uh, my dad worked on cars for a living and still working on cars. Uh, my gr- my mother uh, worked uh, at the, the, they call it the Mahia State School, 
um, is for uh, mentally handicapped individuals, and she's been working there for 20-plus years. I'm the oldest of four. Uh, it's myself, my sister Crystal, my brother Jacob, and my younger sister Rochelle. Um, we all grew up um, at, the, at the house that we've been living in since I'm 27, so they got that house built when I was uh, before I was born, so that house is 28 years old where we've been staying at all our lives. So um, Mahaya is my home. I, I love it. You know, I try to do a number of things back in Mahaya to to help the youth there, uh, but that's my home. Another place in Texas that I know from a book, Friday Night Lights, which I'm sure you're aware of, uh, Odessa. Now, how similar is that place compared to where you grew up? And, and I'm interested to find out what it's like in Texas for high school football. Is that is that really what it's like everywhere? That's really what it's like. Um, you know, if you want to talk about high school football, that's really what it's like. You know, and I actually went to uh, a game in Mahaya, um, during our bye week, and it's still the same way. You know, everybody shuts shuts it down, and everybody's at the football game. Next Saturday morning, everybody talking about the football game, you know. Um, and Odessa uh, is a little different than Mahaya. Odessa is over in West Texas, where it's really nothing but mm-hmm. nothing. It's really nothing out in Odessa uh, but wind farms, you know. Um, it's not a lot out there, and oil pretty much. But it's not a lot out in Odessa. So football is really, you know, what brings a lot of people together here in Texas. And I say that Texas, as a state, has the best football in the world. Uh, you can put me on the record for that. <laughs> Texas football, Texas high school football has the best high school football in the world. Um, and it's because uh, everybody loves it. Uh, Texas is a, is, a, is a football state. Um, and, and people in, in Texas love love their high school football. <laughs> Certainly not the UK anyway. Um, do you think some parents and adults care too much about high school football? You just mentioned it there, but uh, what? I mean, a different question could be, how were your parents with you? How did they treat you when you played? You know, I think they, they treated me like, you know, I mean, they treated me like they, they pretty much treat me the same way they treat me now. You know, that was what I wanted to do. That was my hobby. They supported me in whatever decision that I chose to make. Um, and they supported all my siblings, and we played a, we played uh, various sports. You know, we played basketball, and my sisters played volleyball and track and ran track. I ran, well, I threw the discus on a track team. Uh, my brother played baseball and, and football and basketball. So they supported us in all the sports that we played. But football, they, you know, tried to come to as many games as, as they possibly could. Um, but And that's the same way, you know, they treat me, like I said, they treat me the same way that they treated me when I was in high school. The same way they treat me now. If I if I win a game, they expect to hear from me after the game, whether it's that night or when I land. Uh, now, you know, uh, as a, as a pro player, and if we lose a game, they expect me. They expect to hear from me. So um, my parents haven't changed from high school to now, and and the way that they treated me in high school was was awesome. They treated me like a kid and let me be a kid. I made mistakes as a kid. Uh, I took losses as a kid very hard. I was pissed off and cried and, and it was mad at the world when I lost a game when I was a kid and they taught lessons. They taught me how to how to handle adversity at a very young age and, and, and you know, if it wasn't for them I don't think I would have been able to handle the adversity that has come up on my life, um, you know, since I left left home. That's really that's really great. Um before we get to the Jags, I just wanted to quickly touch on your first team, the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, mm-hmm. That's a historical franchise there. and Is it a different pressure or feeling knowing that you're protecting a Hall of Famer in Ben Roethlisberger? Blocking for, for Ben, you know, knowing that you know, he's, a, he's a great quarterback is no different than how I block for Blake. He's the quarterback of our team um, or the, my former team. And, and when I was there blocking for him, I did everything that I could to make sure that his jersey was clean. 
Um, wanted to make sure that he didn't get hit. He wasn't pressured and he wasn't sacked. Um, and when you take that approach, you know, it doesn't matter who's backed up behind you. You find a way to get it done. Because at the end of the day, you got to take pride in your job and take pride in what you do. And if you take pride in what you do, you know, good things will work out for you. You play offensive tackle mostly on the left side. You've been open in saying that you don't want to play guard. Um, can you explain how different those two positions are? Because for a viewer, especially a casual fan, they, they, they just very much see two positions that are very close to each other. Correct. You know, the thing is, is, is at tackle, you have uh, a lot of space. Uh, you have a lot of space um, to, to maneuver. You have space if you, if you get beat or if you, if you have a guy on the edge, you have time to recover. At guard, everything happens in a very, very tight space. Uh, you're facing a lot, you know, you're facing uh, much bigger, slower guys inside than you are at tackle when you're on the outside. So at guard, everything is in a very closed and confined space where the um, the room for error is very minimal. And not that playing uh, tackle, you know, you have room for error, but you have room to recover when you're at tackle. You don't have a lot of room to recover uh, when, you know, when you're at guard. Um, and it's not that I didn't want the challenge of playing inside a guard, but, you know, I've been playing left tackle for a number of years. That's what they brought me into Jacksonville to play. I was excited to come in and compete uh, for the job, but knew that um, for me to be at my best, that uh, my best would be playing left tackle and, and protecting uh, the backside of, uh, of Blake Bortles. Yeah, when you joined the Jags ahead of this new season, what were you evaluating before signing with the team? You know, for one is, is okay, can we win and can we win now? You know, I just uh, I was just on a team that was in the playoffs and I was like, well, you know, any team can get to the playoffs, but what are, what are our realistic chances of getting to the playoffs? And that was something that I thought about and, and something that uh, me and my agent talked about when we were making the decision to come to Jacksonville. You know, uh, although the record didn't show it, the improvement uh, that Jacksonville had made over the past uh, three or four years with their roster um, was pointing into a direction that, you know, we're all right now, you know, we're in a, a very uh, kind of fork in the road situation. And that's only due to the coaches and the ownership and the, the general manager making decisions to, you know, bolster this roster uh, and put talent um, along a number of positions, a number of key positions on the team. Now, you know, Jacksonville is in a, in a very um, advantageous situation where, we have an opportunity to take over this division. Uh, and if we do things right, you know, over the next couple of weeks, we can put ourselves in the playoffs. And, you know, uh, once you get in the playoffs, it's a whole new season. Yeah, that offensive line in Jacksonville gave up 122 sacks the last two seasons. Did people on that team remind you of that when you signed? And is it something that you want to make sure you're a part of stopping or lowering? Correct. Um, that's something that I heard about and you knew about Jacksonville and, and their woes in the passing game. And, me personally, I take the, I take sacks very very personally. Um, so you know we've given up um, some sacks this year. Some are on us. Some are on the quarterback. Some are on the protection. Some are on coverage. You know, but at the end of the day, it's a sack. And uh, when sacks occur, the number is always put on the offensive line. The offensive line gave up X, and I don't want that no longer to be associated with the offensive line that plays for the Jacksonville Jaguars. We're not a a bad offensive line. We're not sorry. Uh, we're not uh, a sack-ridden team. We're very good in pass protection, um, and we have to be good in, 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 in running the football as well. So it's a combination of both, and they feed off of each other. If you're able to run the ball effectively, 
uh, you're not having to throw the ball as much, and you're not putting yourself in, in passing situations for the whole entire game where uh, guys can get sacks on you. So that's something that I know about and something that I care deeply about because where I came from, we didn't get the quarterback sacked too often. Um, and when we were able to do that, he was able to stand up and make plays. And, you know, with any quarterback in the National Football League, if you give the quarterback an opportunity to make plays, he'll make plays. And we've been able to do that here in uh, in Jacksonville. And um, like I said, we, we got, a, got a chance to, to, to be uh, 500, and that's a, that's a great thing here in Jacksonville. We're talking to Kelvin Beach from the Jacksonville Jaguars. I'm really intrigued to know what you base a good game on. Is it amount of sacks you've given up or pressures the quarterbacks had what do you base a good game on for you personally personally you know for one is did we win that's the first that's number one first and foremost did we win the game uh well first and foremost is that i give glory to god that's the first thing that i that, that everything that i that i did today on this field today did it bring glory uh to god and to jesus christ that's the first and foremost number two is did we win number three is did my guy make any plays whether it was in the run game or in the pass game, did my did, did my guy make any plays? Um, and, and for me, that's did he stop the running back from from breaking a, a big run? You know, did he touch the quarterback? Did he disrupt the quarterback? Did he sack the quarterback? You know, so it's it's me evaluating myself and and, and evaluating whether you know I allowed something negative to happen on a play that caused you know a negative circumstance to my team. You know. So for me, that, those are the those are the three things that I start to look at when I'm judging my performance, and that's even before I even uh, that's before I even had a chance to look at the film. That's immediately after the game. I'm already thinking about okay, what what did I do right? What did I do wrong? And when you win, you know sometimes those things kind of escape you for a little bit. When you lose, you kind of dwell on those things for a long time. But when you win, you have to be able to enjoy the wins, but at the same time realize that you know there's still a lot of room for improvement. Hey, we asked the big questions here on the podcast. So, does Blake Bortles take his offensive line out for dinner? Yes, he does from time to time. Yes, he does. Uh, he took us out um, during OTAs. He's taken us out a couple times during the season. Um, he knows how to treat his offensive line, that's for sure. And I think when any quarterback in the National Football League, if you don't treat your O-line well, you know, uh, that, can, that can come back to haunt you in some instances. But uh, he's done a great job of taking care of us. What about the London trip, uh, Kelvin? You came here. Was it was it a totally weird one, or did you enjoy it? It was. Uh, it's every time I put it like this. Every time I come to London, I always enjoy it. Uh, London is a, is a great place to be. A great place to have football. Uh, it's just a great atmosphere. It's a different atmosphere. It's an atmosphere that we don't get here in the states. Um, you know, because uh, your football isn't as big here. So to be able to come over to London and enjoy some of the festivities and the way that you all have fun and the way that you all uh, celebrate. It's, it's, it's an awesome thing. Um, but every time I come to London, it's always great. Now, the time difference and the travel is always a little rough on me. Uh, it took me a couple of days to kind of recuperate from, from the trip, uh, but that's part of it. And uh, like I said, I, I do enjoy coming to London. It's always a great experience. Um, just wish sometimes we get to stay there a little longer. Both times that I've came to London, you know, I come in on Friday morning and we're, we're out. Uh, we're in practice all day and, you know, only get a couple free hours that Friday night and a couple free hours during Saturday and then we play on Sunday morning. Um, so we'd love to stay a little longer just to just to enjoy London a little bit more um, than I have, you know, in the past. Uh, a couple of things I noticed, the stacks of pizza left for players after the game in the uh, the little walkway between the locker room and the field and the passports that were laid out on a table for you guys to pick up. So you were going straight to the airport 
seems quite surreal for me that you'd play a game and just pick your passport up and go straight back. But is this like the perfect metaphor for the NFL lifestyle? It is. That, that's exactly how it is. You know, we played and played in uh, Chicago. Uh, immediately after the game, I saw my, my two sisters who had dr- driven up to come and see me play. I talked to them for about for about ten minutes. Got on the bus, got on the plane, and came right back to uh, to Jacksonville. Got into Jacksonville, uh, had treatment, didn't get done with treatment until about one o'clock in the morning. Uh, got up at seven o'clock the next morning to start the routine all the way back over all again. So that's that's part of uh, the lifestyle that comes along with this uh, with this great sport. And it's like I said, it's something that I wouldn't trade for anything in the world. Yeah, it's your off day today, so you take your day off on a Tuesday. How sore is the body, and, and what are you doing to make sure that you get through a 16-game season? Well, the off day is one that I, you know, I sleep in a little bit, and then I go in, and I get a workout in, and get some rehab in. and Usually for the rest of the day, I'm either on the phone, you know, um, catching up with family or, or taking care of some business or icing my knee. You know, right now I actually have a, a treat. Uh, uh, I have a, a um, a machine on my knee doing treatment as I'm as I'm talking to you right now. <laughs> so it's always, you know, it's always doing something to make sure that my body is right. And, you know, just trying to continue to, to, you know, the body is beaten up on Sunday, and it's like all you're trying to do during the week is just get it as as close to 100% as you can to get ready to go beat it up all over again and then do the whole thing over again the following week. So um, it's part of the grind, um, you know, but if you take care of your body, you know, you, you can play in those leagues for a long time. It's, and I've learned that from a lot of guys, you know, while I was there, while while I was in Pittsburgh, that if you take care of your body, your body will take care of you, and you're able to do that. You're able to make um, some substantial money, some generational type money, which will set you up for life after football. Yeah, it certainly sounds like you're aware of it's you know prehab almost. So you're trying to um, prevent injuries and correct. Go through the timeline here. When you made the roster in Pittsburgh, that was a great achievement. Then you started five games your rookie year. Then you beat out second-round pick Mike Adams, started 12 games, and then you played a full season. And the year after that, you missed most of the season with the ACL tear. How do you deal with that? And I, I read about how you it, you talked about how it made you a better man. H- how so? You know, I, I really felt, and I can say this today, because today marks a year since I actually blew my knee out. Today was the uh, last year, October 18th. 2015 was when I blew my knee out last year. Um, and today marks a year, and I can really say that it's made me a better man. It's made me appreciate the small things in life, the small moments in life. I actually tweeted that out this morning, uh, hashtag moments, because it's like I, I really begin to appreciate those small moments. You know, after a win, appreciate seeing everybody in the locker room celebrating and taking my time to really relish in those moments, relishing those moments after we won in London, you know, relishing the moments after we lost, you know, how I felt after we lost, writing it down. You know, writing it down how I felt after we won, writing it down how I felt after we lost. You know, spending more time with my family, spending more time with my daughter. Um, you know, I just I felt that I became a better father, a better husband, um, a better son, a better brother uh, during that you know during that time because I I really started to appreciate even more um, the God given talents that He's given me and the and the, the God given ability and the and the platform that He's given me to to play the game that I love so dearly. Um, and, and for me, it's just I think I've really uh, become to appreciate this game uh, so much more uh, with that injury. So what do you write down if you lose a game? Do you have a little a note diary next to you or what do you carry? Well, I, I, have, I have a journal that I usually carry with me all the time. Um, I've, I've Actually, this is my third journal that I'm going through right now. Uh, I've been doing journaling since I was in college. And just, you know, how I feel, 
what I'm praying about, what I'm thinking about. You know, if I go to a business meeting, you know, taking notes from that that particular meeting, and um, you know, it's it's something that I, that I that I use quite a bit now, um, just to kind of just you know, just record thoughts. You know, when you're able to record thoughts and then go back and look at those thoughts, you know, months later, uh, it's, it's special to see some of the things you thought about and maybe some of the things you were praying about that God found a way to answer for you. So, something I've been doing for some time. I actually heard about it from Oprah. Uh, I heard that Oprah used to. Um, uh, every night she would write down three things that she was grateful for before she went to bed. And for me, I, I started doing that, and it's just turned into something that, you know, I use quite a bit and use it in all walks of life for myself. What is your favorite TV show in the States? Dragon Ball Z. I don't even know if you know about that. <laughs> I have not heard of that. I was I was hoping you'd say something like Breaking Bad. <laughs> no, man. Dragon Ball Z is a cartoon, actually. It's actually, actually out of uh, Japan. Um but they've Americanized it. I've been watching it since I was a kid. Um, that's what I watch if I have time. Other than that, the, the, my favorite TV show that me and my wife actually like watching is called uh, Blackish. Um, it's a it's a show that comes on ABC uh, on Thursday nights. It's pretty funny. Uh, I think it or oh, Wednesday nights. Wednesday nights, I think. Um, but when she's in town, we'll 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 uh, sit down and watch that that t- television show together. So you say your wife, when she's in town, does that mean she she's living away from your you, Jacksonville or just locally? No, she lives she lives uh, in in Pittsburgh right now. She's finishing up school. So when I made the decision to come down to Jacksonville, signing with Jacksonville, my wife was still in school uh, there in, at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. So she finishes up in December. So since I've been in Jacksonville, we've both been traveling quite a bit. Um, me traveling back and forth to Pittsburgh to see her and my daughter and her and my daughter traveling back and forth from, from uh, Pittsburgh to Jacksonville to come and spend time with me. Uh, usually on Hall of Home Games, uh, they come down for come down for the home games, and she'll come in Friday night or Saturday morning, and then she'll leave out right after the game. So we get a couple hours with each other, and then she has to go back to Pittsburgh. Her and my daughter go back to Pittsburgh. So um, I'm here in Jacksonville until mid-December by myself, you know, having to do it by myself for a while. Wow. I, like, I th- again, that's... <laughs> That's 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 the things that people don't know about the league, man. They don't know, yeah. you know, some of the sacrifices and some of the things that you have to go through, um, you know, to to make life work. You know, and some people think that you know we just have it all great and everything is always pleasant and you know the lifestyle is is great, which it is. But there are also some things that occur um, while you're playing this game that are not comfortable. You know, it's not comfortable not seeing your daughter go to sleep. You know, or not kissing your daughter every night before she goes to sleep for. Not spending time with your wife when she comes home from school, or you coming home from uh, from football. You know it's not pleasant all the time, but that's a sacrifice that we're both willing to make. And we understand that when we come out of this thing, and when she gets out of school and moves down to Jackson, but everything will be it'll be all right. I think it's a sacrifice to play football first of all. Um, and someone else who's from well lived in Pittsburgh for a long time, Dr. Bennett and Marlow. I've just finished reading. Uh, the book Concussion about his life and I've read League of Denial and, and I'm sure that you, you've you seen a lot of the things that have come out um, in the last five, six, seven years about concussions. Um, are you ever concerned about, you know, what it's going to do to your, you later on in life? We see someone like Chris Borland who retired early because he just didn't want to uh, take that risk. Are you worried about it and, and do you plan to try and prevent it when you when you retire? Well, you know, it is something that has crossed my mind but at the same time I've been playing football for a long time and a lot of people have been playing football for a long time you understand the risks that are associated with it and I always use this analogy when you drive a car you have the same risk of getting a concussion when you have a wreck 
So, you know, yes, uh, football is something that we choose to do on every Sunday, and an accident is something that is truly an accident. You know, there are risks and rewards and, and repercussions for a lot of different things. You can, you know, fall out your bed and get concussed. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's a number of things that, that can happen that could cause concussions. But, you know, understanding the, the ramifications of, of what I'm doing, I understand that I have to be careful and I have to – not careful, I have to play the game careless and violent, but I understand that, you know, I also have to handle things on the back end. So if it's getting the proper rest that I need to get, make sure that I'm resting. Um, you know, I have a hyperbaric chamber that I use that, that, that helps, you know, prom- promote health um, and oxygen into your body. You know, I get in that uh, regularly. You know, um, there are a number of different studies that are coming out uh, that are that are that have some some uh, some. There, it's in a trial period, but things that can help um, with the matter in your brain that uh, is caused when you're concussed. They're putting out things that could help. Uh, alleviate some of the matter that comes out of your brain. So there are a number of things that I'm looking at that could help me long term um, with some of the things that that have occurred, you know, uh, while I've had concussions in, in the National Football League. And I haven't watched concussions, so I don't know what uh, what that's all about. My wife hasn't watched it. I'm glad she hasn't watched it. But you know, it's it's, it's a number of different dynamics that go into that whole conversation. But uh, one, I know the ramifications of, of playing football, and two, um, you know, I'm gonna find a way to make sure that long-term-wise, I can be here for my family um, and, and do everything that I can within my power. Uh, you know, when I'm off the football field, to do things that uh, promote uh, brain health. If a doctor told you you had to retire, could you? He would have to give me every single reason why I have to retire <laughs> before I retire. Uh, you know, your time is, 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 is only known by the man up above. Uh, when God says it's time for me to quit, I quit. Uh, and if a doctor has something to say, I go find another doctor. If that doctor has something to say, I go find another doctor. But I'm going to exhaust every single resource before I have to actually make that decision. You're a Tottenham Hotspur fan on a lighter note. Uh, you wore your shirt in the locker room after the game against uh, the Colts in Wembley. How did they become your club? You know, um, I said this to, to actually the Tottenham Spurs uh, media manager when I talked to him not too long ago. Um, growing up, I've been a big San Antonio Spurs fan. Um, here is a basketball team locally, a very well-respected organization. Um, when I got into the league, you know, um, you know, started following football, you know, with uh, the Premier League and, and things of that nature. And I was like, man, I really need a team. I really need a team that fits me, uh, fits what I'm about, um, you know, I just need a team. And I happen to be following people on social media, uh, follow uh, uh, Delhi Ali, um, follow uh, the Tottenham Spurs and started seeing what they, were, what they were about and just kind of fell in love with the organization and the fan base. And since then, I've really just uh, loved what they're about. You know, I think that they have a game to, to, today, actually in a couple hours, if yeah. it's starting already. Champions uh, League. Yeah, Champions League. Um, uh, You're going to watch? Five, I think it's I'm going to try to. I'm going to sit down. After I get off the phone with you, I'm going to see if I can catch it. Um, I got a couple calls before the, the evening is over. want to catch it and uh, sit down and watch that a couple of times. Got to got to do my live tweet during during, <laughs> during the game, you know. <laughs> yeah, live but, uh, blogging. Just really, just, I know, right? We just love what the uh, what the organization is about um, and then had a chance to meet um, some, some personnel from the administration 
um, here in the States when I was uh, at the Licensing Expo uh, earlier this year, and we got to talking, and um, I told them I would be over playing in London this year, and they actually sent me a jersey put my name on the back of it. And, you know, for me, that was a big thing that, you know, I follow a team, and um, they actually sent me a, a custom-made jersey with my name on it. So that, that was really special. That was that's like that made me like the ultimate fan now. So it's like <laughs> it took it from just being like a fan to like the super, the super fan, you know? Well, who knows? In a couple of years, if you're still with the Jags, you'll be playing in Tottenham's new ground because 2018, that's going to open and then the NFL is going to be here at least twice a year for that stadium. So that could be fun. Exactly. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, last couple of questions before I let you go. Have you ever had to block J.J. Watt? Yes, I have. Uh, I blocked them uh, two two years ago, two or three years ago. Uh, they came to Pittsburgh and played us on, I think it was Sunday Night Football. Uh, we ended up beating Houston. Um they thought I had a, a really good game against him, uh, a great competitor. Um, you know, it's the National Football League. You play good t- good, good defensive linemen and defensive end quite often. So I uh, was excited to play him, and our offensive line was excited to play him there in Pittsburgh. Um, and now I'm excited to play him two times a year, play him uh, here in Jacksonville and then to play him in, in uh, Houston. I know he's down this year, but looking forward to having him back. Because, um, you know, when you play in the best people, you can – you can see where you where you stack up among some of the best tackles in the league when you're facing the best of the best across the league. Your Twitter page at Calvin Beecham Jr. is interesting. When you go through the media, all the photos, it's obvious how much community work you do. Where does that attitude come from? Because you you've been gracious with me, you've been gracious with people that you meet. Where does that come from? It comes from my parents. You know, my parents were givers and. Uh, like I said, I grew up in a church and, and knew that it's better to give than to receive. Um, and then when I got to college, I had a coach that I always talked about what you give or grow, what you keep you lose. Um, so for me, uh, to be able to give back uh, what God has blessed me with is, is huge. Uh, because what I have, I really don't deserve it. Um, you know, the, the accolades, the, the platform, the games that I've started, you know, the, the money that I've received. None of those things I deserve, but God allowed me to, to have those things. So, you know, I just want to be a good steward of what he's given me and be able to give it back, my resources, my time, uh, my funds when I'm able to, um, and just be a, a good citizen, not only to, to this country, but to the world. You said you were put in a box as a seventh-round draft pick. You said you were put in a box as a student athlete at SMU and as an African-American student at a predominantly white university. What did you mean by that? You know, I was when I went to SMU, I was stereotyped. Um, you know, I was stereotyped as somebody that's all he's doing is coming here to play football, and if you get an education, he gets an education. If not, so be it. Um, and I wanted to, to disband that stereotype, and um, I've had a chance to do that. I actually went to SMU, got two degrees, got uh, a degree in economics and sports management, and got a master's in organizational dynamics. Um, I've actually been appointed to the um, Simmons School of Education Executive Board uh, this past year. Um, and everything that I've done in my life, you know, it's been um, kind of that underdog mentality where I was told I couldn't do it, told I wasn't going to be anything, told I wasn't going to be nothing. And to be able to accomplish the things that I've been able to accomplish has been um, pretty special. Um, and I've taken that approach not only in the academic world, but also um, in my in my athletic world. And, um, you know, coming out of the draft, I was told that I was just a guard. I was too short. Um you know, I wasn't big enough, I wasn't fast enough to play the position. I wasn't strong enough to play the position, and specifically to play left tackle in the league. So they didn't know where to put me. Um, and when they when they got drafted, you know, they wanted to put me inside a guard and put me in this box. So like, you can only do this. 
And for me, I knew that I could do way more than that because I, I believed in myself. I had confidence in myself. And that's what I mean when I talk about putting, putting, you know, putting my, putting people putting me in a box. And, um, you know, I've been characterized that way quite a bit. And as an African-American, especially as an African-American man in our society today, um, you know, people can put stereotypes on us. And if you're not willing to um, go above and beyond to dis, uh, disprove those, those, uh, those stereotypes, you know, you'd be put in a box as well. I was going to go to rapid fire, but you've just uh, sparked off something in my head. What do you think about what Colin Kaepernick's doing at the moment? And have you considered taking a knee during the anthem? Um, I think it's, if, if people really consider the message instead of the actual act and what he's doing, I think people will really realize the message of what he's trying to portray is there needs to be uh, equality for African-Americans um, and minorities across the world. Um, and he took a stand, you know, and I think the message and what he did is great. I'm all for the message. You know, uh, people can have their opinions about whether he should be kneeling, whether he should be fisting, you know, whether he should be doing anything. But, you know, at this, at this, in this day and age, you know, um, there have been a number of people that have done all sorts of things. You got Trump, you know, doing what he's doing and talking about how you do things to women, which is, not the right thing to do, but you criticize a man who's standing up for everybody, who's asking for equality, which is what America is built uh, built on is the quality uh, is is uh, is equality. So um, I, I support him. Um, I support what he's what his message is all about, um, and I think his message is right on. Um, and some of the things that I do philanthropically are actually um, symptoms of some of the things that he's talking about from a social justice standpoint. So to, to see him take a stand and to see him um, voice a, a message that is ringing loud throughout the African-American community, I thought it was spot on and right on time. Yeah, I agree with you. I'm right there with the message. But where do you think it's going? I think the message is actually going in the direction that it needs to go. You know, I think that people are starting to have conversations and people are starting to have dialogue about some of the things that are going on systematically in our social justice system. Um, I think people are sitting down with police uh, police officers and police chiefs and elected officials and mayors and congressmen and having conversations. And, and, and at the end of the day, that's what it's all about, because the only way for us to, to, to move forward is to have conversations. And hopefully, you know, the thing is, is hopefully those conversations can turn into actions and those actions can turn into um, the way people are treated. And when people are treated equally, you know, all, all it can be is a better world. Well said. Rapid fire, and I'm going to let you go. So who's the worst dresser in the Jags locker room? The the worst dresser? Yeah. The worst dresser. I would say uh, Jalen Ramsey. <laughs> Why do you wear number 68? Because that's the month that um, I was born and the date that I was born. I was born June 8th. So uh, the sixth month and the eighth day. I like it. Who wins in a foot race, Alan Hearns or Alan Robinson? Ooh, I don't know. That's close. Uh, how far are they going? They're gonna do a hundred yards. Now let's go forty-yard dash. Forty-yard dash. Forty-yard dash. I might take Hearns in the forty. If it was a hundred, I take uh, I take Robinson. <laughs> okay. In a Beecham versus food contest, what food would you take, and how much could you eat? Watermelon. I could I could knock out a whole <laughs> bunch of watermelon. A whole bunch of watermelon. Not burgers. Come on, man. <laughs> Not burgers, watermelon. I love the fruit. Okay, final one. Your favorite off-day activity apart from talking to me? <laughs> Sleeping.
<laughs> Calvin, man, you've been great. Thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, get back to your knee and speaking to your family and watching the Spurs. Yes, sir. Anytime. Take care. Anytime. Calvin Beecham there. My absolute favorite line of the interview, without a doubt. He could demolish watermelon in a food contest. Anyway, let's keep the guests coming on the US Sports Podcast with Max Whittle. I met him at Fenway Park last year. He's one of my favorite NFL writers. Do go check him out at NFL.com. The legend that is Don Banks. I've got to say, it's great to talk to you again, Don. Um, there was absolutely zero chance of me meeting you at Fenway Park last year. That did happen, right? It did indeed, yes. It was uh, like a movie scene. We <laughs> just uh, happened to be on the same subway car together. And you spotted me, and then the next thing I know, we were having beers, several of them, with uh, Peter King in a pregame session. Yeah, two things I learned about you that night. Your insight of the Fenway Frank and that baseball is your favorite sport. How did, that, how did it earn that right? Uh, just growing up, it was the first sport I fell in love with probably when I was seven years old. Uh, I actually was a somewhat of a bandwagon fan who fell into the fervor surrounding the 1969 Mets, who were called the Miracle Mets, the Amazing Mets, Worst team in the league for their first, uh, what would it have been, about seven years in the National League, and then came out of nowhere in 1969 to win the World Series. And I was young, impressionable, and uh, decided that um, their first baseman, who was named Don Clendenin, spelled his Don with two N's. I thought that was the coolest thing I had ever heard. I decided he was my favorite player. Next thing I know... uh, I had declared myself a Mets fan. It didn't last, though, uh, because I uh, I turned into a Cincinnati Reds fan the next year and went down that road for a long, long time before eventually the Red Sox captured my heart. <laughs> yeah, when I was at Fenway, I thought, how can you hate the Red Sox? How can it possibly happen like that? Because it's such a great stadium, such great fans. And you talked about the Mets there. What about Tim Tebow? What, do you think he's going to get a major league at bat, or is this going to fade away quickly? Um, I tend to think it's going to fade away fairly quickly. I mean, he's he's got some skills. There's a lot more to it to um, make the major leagues, and I tend to put it more in the publicity stunt um, category. But you know what? He has proven people wrong before. I guess he could do it again, and we shall see um, if that possibility comes comes to pass. I. I I'm not holding my breath to see Tim Tebow in a major league uniform. If it is, it might be the proverbial cup of coffee just uh, perhaps to whip up interest. But I think he's got a long way to go and has been away from the game for too long to really recapture whatever baseball magic he once made in high school. I'm trying to imagine you at school. So were you a sports nerd or a cool dude? Um, I was a little of both, actually. um I played baseball, soccer, and even two years of football in uh, middle and high school. Um, I was I went to a smaller private school, so I wasn't in a huge, uh, big you know, big fish uh, atmosphere. But I was fairly popular. One most humorous my senior year in high school. Had a lot of friends, um, but was. Um, I was pretty determined. I was telling people back then I was either going to play center field for the Cincinnati Reds or try to be a sports writer, uh, hmm. hopefully for Sports Illustrated someday. So it it did 
it did come to pass on some level. Yeah, you told that story on the SI podcast, and you said your mum uh, bought you a, the magazine. She got you the subscription when you were 10 or so. Um, before you covered the beat as well for the Bucks and the Vikings, there must have been a point where you realized you wanted to be a sports writer. What, what triggered that? just seemed like a, a pretty cool way to uh, be around sports um, you know, without um, completely um, giving up my dream of, of being an athlete. But, I mean, I think a lot of kids grow up and they turn into a fan first and then hopefully they get to play the sport, get a little taste of what it's like to be on the field, and then you want to kind of be around it. And it was to me it just made sense that was where my – one of my passions, um, and it, you know, I thought it was a pretty cool-sounding way to make a um, a living as well, and it kind of went from there. I went, uh, you know, a somewhat typical route of working at my hometown newspaper and covering high school sports for a long time, and then getting an opportunity to cover the Bucks in 1990, and um, tried to make the most of it. Yeah, in the 24-hour news cycle that we live in today, everyone's trying to catch up with digital and everything else, but when you joined the beat in 1990s, you say, how different was the newspaper industry then to what it is now? Well, it's dramatically different. I mean, obviously, you know, back then, if you if you wrote something, you had it for 24 hours. If it was a scoop, it lasted that long. It was they didn't have it, your competition, you did, or vice versa. Um, it was there was no way to make up for that with <laughs> um a, a social media post and and certainly it was it was a slower pace i didn't feel it at the time but it was a slower pace because you did have that day to develop a story and now you may have minutes uh sometimes <laughs> seconds to to try to get some sort of news out there it's just it's warp speed and now it's you know, you can you can literally work 24/7 if you want. Um, I don't think it sounds like much of a life, but there are people that I see on Twitter at all hours, mm -hmm. and I think, wow, they're really they're completely and utterly tied to their their beat, and that um, that is one of the dramatic differences. And you know, print media was still <laughs> relatively in its heyday when I started in this business, and it certainly is not at this point. Yeah, I figure listening to you a lot and reading your stuff, you you take you use Twitter. It's a good tool. It's a great tool for journalists. But I I feel like in some ways you don't like it as well. Uh, you 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 were talking about you know when people used to make jokes in the press box, well now they'll just tweet it. Is it is it has it been more good or more bad for your career? Do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. I I don't enjoy Twitter so much. I think it's it's it emboldens people to be kind of crass and idiotic at times I, I what I was referring to is I kind of missed the press box environment when you had a good line you would kind of lean back in your chair and say it louder <laughs> and everybody else is talking now you just put it on Twitter and then you see like heads start to uh, bob a little bit with laughter around the press box if they read your tweet but it's uh, it's certainly not as uh, it's not as old school as it used to be where you just kind of spoke over everyone and got in a good line but uh, it's not going away, and it's mm -hmm. definitely <laughs> pretty popular. I would say it's probably helped me in some ways, but I, I, I don't love it because I think I've made my own mistakes on Twitter and 
fired off something I should have just swallowed, and I know uh, plenty of other people have made that same mistake. Hey, someone actually said to you the other day that, and I sound like a stalker now, which I probably am, that you should uh, use Snapchat for your Snap judgments. Now, do you, do you know Snapchat? Are you aware of it? I know it, but I haven't, I haven't gone there yet. I'm, I'm still... I'm still a dinosaur, relatively speaking. So I'm now, you know, I've been on Twitter for years, maybe four, five, six years, and um, I've, I've dabbled now in Facebook, and I'm on Facebook. But I'd be darned if I'm going to uh, diversify uh, all the way to Snapchat, unless I'm, you know, drug kicking and screaming. I, I'll get there, I suppose, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to be on the front wave of any new social media platform, I can promise you. All in good time. Um, it turns like your final pod at SI was a very good research tool for this podcast. Um, you talked about some of the great stories that you've covered. And there was one that, there was, well, there was a couple that caught my eye. Corey Stringer dies in 2001 from heat exhaustion, and this is just before 9-11. And you spent three days with his widow and the attorney. They were suing the Vikings. So what I wanted to ask you was, how do you deal with a story like that when you're meeting people who are, quite obviously devastated well the the good news is that 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 trip to cincinnati where uh, kelsey stringer and um james gould the attorney were there was some there was some time in between Corey's very tragic um demise and and that um that weekend um so it wasn't it was fresh but it wasn't uh tremendously fresh um but still, it was, you're, you're going into a situation there where obviously sensitivity is your first and foremost um, reminder and goal. Um, I had met Kelsey before, but I, had, I didn't know her before that weekend, and it was, you know, it was a tricky story because you can't, you know, the saying in journalism is you can anybody can threaten to sue, but it takes actually filing a lawsuit. Um, they did file a lawsuit. It was. Um, a uh, pretty sizable headline at the time, I believe, as I recall, they were asking for $100 million. Um, but that story was, you know, it was a little personal, too. I knew Corey. I covered Corey. Um, the way he died was so um, unbelievably sad and, and tragic um, and shouldn't have happened, but it, it happened, and it taught people an awful lot about heat exhaustion and what, you know, what the worst-case scenario can be. Yeah, it's tough. Um, another one you said you were talking about was Emmett Smith, and you covered him in high school. Um, and you claimed that you were the first out-of-town interview he ever did, right? Yeah, he, he told me um, he was heading into his senior year of high school, and it was the May before that, so he was still technically a junior. And he told me no one had ever been to town to to talk to him, even though he was a very accomplished player at that point, because – the coach at his high school didn't allow the kids to talk uh, to reporters, so it was all done. Um, it was all done through the head coach, and he was the only voice. And so Emmett said, "You know, I've never talked to an out-of-town reporter before," which I, I knew even then that was pretty bizarre. And and as he went on then to great fame at the University of Florida and then the Dallas Cowboys, and set the rushing record in the NFL, I I would see him from time to time and remind him. Um, of my exalted status in his uh, high school career as being the first reporter to ever talk to him. But he was 
he would always it would always jog his memory. He'd laugh a little bit and say, "Oh yeah, that's right, I remember." But yeah, in May of 1986, I spent uh, two or three days in Pensacola and ended up um, getting to hang with his parents one night at at their home um, as part of the profile I was writing about Emmett. Did they cook for you? Any dinner? No, I don't recall them cooking, but I remember being there for about three hours and Emmett getting home, and it was kind of weird because I'm there with his parents, and there's Emmett's in the door, and like, oh, you're still here, that type of thing. So, He's still hanging around. Um, did you ever interview O.J. Simpson? No, I never I, – I've never um, – I've never been, I don't think, maybe other than in a, um, just in a peripheral sense uh, around him. So I don't think, um, I don't think I would have ever had reason. I mean, it didn't cover the league. He obviously retired, I want to say, in 1979. So I didn't cover the league, and I don't think I would have ever seen him at a uh, owner's meetings or a Super Bowl. So that is one person that I have escaped uh, his radar. Now, I know you're into politics, as a lot of people are, especially in the current climate. Um, and I know you would have watched the debate the other week. Are you embarrassed to be an American right now? Um, I don't think it's our finest hour, this election. No, I think, uh, I think it's kind of um, remarkable, the rise of Trump. Um, I think everybody that follows politics believes that, you know, it was a long shot at best. You know, I think it's certainly given rise to a certain um, element on the Republican right that is not very inclusive, and I think it's also uh, um, a time in our politics where insults are carrying the day, and I don't think that's ever good for discourse and reasoned um, decision-making. Who do you think is going to win? I don't know. Um, I, I I tend to think that there are more people who are turned off by Trump style than are turned on by Trump style. So I tend to think it'll be Hillary Clinton by three to four percent. You recently set up a Facebook page and you've got a great picture there with Mark Wahlberg. So I'm presuming that was the Invincible. What's the story behind that? Just uh, we got to be absolutely bit players in that movie, uh, which was filmed in Philadelphia. He played Vince Papali, the Eagles special teams player who walked on uh, the first year of Dick Vermeule's era in 1976. And Mark Wahlberg played Vince Papali. And I think it was the movie was shot, I want to say, in 07. And in an ingenious little trick, Chip Namias, who was doing publicity for the movie, decided to cast real-life national sports writers as sports writers circa 1976, knowing that we would write, tweet, talk, whatever we were doing back then uh, about us being in the movie. So that was a photo of us in, I suppose, costume or garb of 1976, looking like sports writers, hopefully, at Franklin Field uh, the day that they shot our scenes. So... You left Sports Illustrated in September, and I, I know you don't really want to get into this. Um, you, you put out a funny tweet, actually. After all these years of NFL coverage, it turns out I'm a bit of a salary cap cut. Um, and the downsizing in media departments is rife at the moment. 
were you aware that this was going to happen and, and obviously your career is going to carry on, it's going to go from strength to strength, but were you aware of this at all? Not, not in the least, no. I was aware in general that it's not a healthy time to be in my business. I was aware um, that Sports Illustrated was having certain financially based issues, but no, it, it was not a move uh, that I had been tipped off to or was made to think was possible. And certainly it was not ideal timing given that it was, you know, right before the NFL season started. So what I'm doing is freelancing right now for NFL.com, which is a great platform. Hope, hope it turns into more than freelancing, but was able to at least continue my game day NFL snap judgments column, um, starting in week two. Mm. So it was just the one week I did it on Facebook at the request of several <laughs> friends and colleagues who thought it was good to at least keep it out there on some on some platform, even if it was a uh, non-paying one. Well, it was so. an unedited version. I was very honorable of you to do that because it was it was for free. And but I think a lot of people enjoyed to read it. And one of the great things you did towards the end of your SI tenure was the podcast with Andrew Perloff or McLovin, as he's known. <laughs> and I think that's one of your greatest skills. I mean, is it something you want to carry on with? Yeah, it is. Uh, I enjoyed it um, quite a bit. And I, I thought we were finding kind of a nice uh, little niche and a nice rhythm in our style. He and I had worked together for many years. He was actually my day-to-day editor uh, at SI.com on the NFL front um, for a number of years. And um, so we kind of, we know each other's sense of humor. We know each other's um, I guess style of communicating, and it was it was working pretty well. And I thought we had a, uh, I thought we had reasonable success for a first time podcast. Um, so yeah, the, the short story, I would like to continue it. Um, I've had some people talk to me about doing my own podcast and what that might entail. Right now, I haven't quite figured out the time or the. Um, I guess the format, but I, I intend to mm. um, at some point in the future. That's great. That's great. I know you've got to run, so three rapid-fire questions, and you can answer them as quickly as you want. So if you could start your team with David Ortiz or Derek Jeter as rookies, who would, who would you take? Uh, you'd, probably take you'd probably take Jeter just because of what he represented as a shortstop and two, um, uh, you know, a, a, a more all-around player than just a DH, although – Hard to imagine a, a better clutch hitter in the span of time than what Ortiz has been. But I, I suppose for what he brought to the table all around, you'd probably go Jeter, although it pains me to make that choice. Mm-hmm. Would you rather? And I'll un- never forgive you for making me do it. <laughs> Would you rather uncover the biggest story at the Super Bowl or attend Game 7 of a Red Sox World Series? I suppose the career-oriented uh, goal would. I mean, given now that I've had three Red Sox World Series oh, uh, spoiled. triumphs, yeah, and then you know the irony is I had I actually had tickets to Game Six of the 2013 World Series, which was the first time they won at Fenway since uh, way back 190 something. Um, and for long story short, I I couldn't attend, and it always has kind of haunted my wife and uh, and I. We had been at games one and two. We had been at the first round of the playoffs for one game, the second round of the playoffs for two games. We just simply, we were living in Philadelphia at the time. We, we could not get back there for that uh, decisive game, but it's always bothered me that I didn't go ahead and do it and just say, screw it. 
party's a party. When am I going to do this again? You told me the long version of that at Fenway, so please come back on and, and tell us tell us more. But thank you for your time. I know you've you've got to go on, so it was it was fun. Thank you, Max. Always good to be with you, and good luck, continuing luck on the podcast. Really happy to have had two such great people on the podcast this week. I hope you enjoyed it. That's what I want this show to be all about now and going forward. What I learned today, Kelvin Beecham prefers fruit to burgers. Very surprised about that, especially because he's an offensive lineman. And I learned that Don Banks was the first ever reporter to interview Emmett Smith during his high school career because Smith's head coach at high school didn't allow the players to talk to reporters. I'm on Twitter, at Max underscore Whittle. Remember, you can download the US Sports Podcast with Max Whittle on iTunes and follow on the official Audio Boom page. Until next time, enjoy the sporting schedule, folks. It's a busy one.